Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we're joined by an actor who has been described as reliable, versatile, all sorts of wonderful adjectives to describe Tony Roberts, who has been on stage more than four decades and twice already in the same show, once in the original version of Barefoot in the Park, now in the current revival that's running here in New York. Along the way, Tony has been in more than 20 Broadway plays, has a couple of Tony nominations to his uh, credit for How Now Dow Jones for Best Actor in a Musical, and also for Play It Again Sam for Best Supporting Actor in to play, and he's been in a slew of other productions. We'll be talking about many of them today, and also half a dozen Woody Allen movies and plenty of others. We'll talk about the movies a little bit later. But, Tony, you've been in Barefoot in the Park twice, the first time around playing the, the newlywed, now playing uh, Victor upstairs, the upstairs neighbor. How's it feel to be back in the same show? Well, it's spooky. It feels like <laughs> being in a Rod Serling episode of some sort. I can uh, hear the lines as they were spoken uh, 43 years ago, I guess it is, mm-hmm. and uh, and I can remember the people who spoke them. And uh, Who were you in it with at that point? Well, I was in it for a long time, actually. I was in it for 17 months, okay. and when I went into it, uh, my co-star was Penny Fuller, and uh, Mildred Natwick was still playing the mother, and Kurt Kasner was playing uh, Victor Velasco, the part I play now. And uh, in the course of the 17 months, Penny Fuller was replaced by, among other people, Joan Van Ark. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kurt Kasner was replaced by Jules Munchen. And then uh, Eric Rhodes from the old uh, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movies. Uh, he was always the, uh, the, uh, the, the other suitor, the rival suitor to Fred Astaire. And uh, Charles Corvin also played it. And the, the woman who had a lot to do with my becoming an actor, Eileen Heckert, replaced Mildred Natwick. And it was a great thrill to work with her because um, when I saw her in The Bad Seed, I was a teenager, of course, and uh, I'd never seen such a, um, uh, a moving performance. And uh, I was very thrilled to be able to work with her. Well, for the couple of people on the planet who may never have seen Barefoot in the Park, either the movie or the original version or the current, it's basically the story of four people, a newlywed couple, and the first time around you were playing one of the newlyweds, and they're uh, the the bride's mother and the upstairs neighbor, Victor Velasco, the character you're currently playing. And Victor Velasco is kind of a worldly, kind of offbeat sort of a gentleman who <laughs> uh, who, who drops in to visit at uh, unexpected moments sometimes. Uh, how, how did you make the character your own? Because you played with some other wonderful actors four decades ago. Now you are Victor Velasco. Well, to be honest with you, I did a lot of preparation for it, which turned out to be uh, uh, totally uh, uh, useless. <laughs> because my concept of how I would do it uh, differed from the concept that the uh, director had of how it should be done, uh-huh. and he's the man who gave me the job. So uh, I put my own ideas away, <laughs> along with my European accent. I'd been studying people like Paul Lucas and Hans Conried and uh, and even uh, Kurt Kasner himself, who all brought some kind of mid-European accent to the to the part. And uh, Scott Elliott, our director, didn't see it that way. He wanted to do something very different. So I became a guy who got himself uh, out of Brooklyn and <laughs> <laughs> lost his accent. And it's hard to know where he comes from. Um, thanks to Isaac Mizrahi, 
I look pretty bizarre uh, in the role, and it's one of those great parts that gets set up before you ever come on stage. All the backstory is told by the other characters, and when I come on, uh, they already have an idea uh, of who I am and what I might be. So um, my job is not to get in the way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a very interesting situation in that having been in the show originally, when the show was a contemporary piece, it was very much of the period in which it was written. Now it is a look back 40 years, both at Neil Simon's early work, at life in that era. And you were working mostly with people who were, if alive at all, children in that era, with the exception of, of your direct co-star, Jill Clayburgh. Um, what was the approach going into it in terms of how do you take the look back and, and what was their perspective on an era that you'd lived in? Well, that's very interesting. You know, I wasn't around uh, in the first production. I was a replacement. You know, right. I replaced Robert Redford. And um, I, I think that the, Mike Nichols, the director of the original production, was mostly interested in in, in um, mining the play that had been written. He wanted to uh, uh, find the uh, absolute extremes of physical behavior uh, that the play required, meaning uh, the uh, the fact that it's six flights up in a walk in a walk up uh, every time somebody comes in. They have to deal with the muscle pain. And the uh, lung exhaustion, and uh, that uh, was explored to the nth degree in the original production, uh, along with the chemistry between the characters, between the two lovers, and um, and the whole uh, germ of the fight, which is really the climax scene in the play, and how it came out of both of their their own particular personalities. Um, that focus, I think, was really uh, where most of the time and effort was spent the first time around. In the revival, uh, I think uh, it was an attempt to really set the play sociologically in a particular time in history, exactly the time before the civil rights movement got going, before Vietnam became an issue. It was a transitional time from the kind of quiet Eisenhower generation into the more uh, demonstrative rebellion that followed. And I think that was a very interesting approach, but very different from the where the focus was the first time around. So now you've got um, musical references to the era which were never part of the play. Um, you've got atten- great attention to detail in terms of, of time-specific things at that point. So it's like looking back in a kaleidoscope almost of what, what was. Well, again, you mentioned Isaac Mizrahi. Then you would buy costumes. You would Costumes were as easy as going to whatever stores were current at that time and, and buying clothes. Now it is indeed costume. Yes, that's right. And, and also I think a little bit of, of fashion involved as well, which was not so important in the first production. I mean, Corey was in sneakers and jeans, and now she makes a statement in a fashionable, in a fashion sense, you might say, with a uh, much higher, elegant line of clothes that she's wearing. Hmm. Well, you, you made made a reference to the music. Let's be clear; it's not a musical, but there's a use of recorded music. 
basically 45 RPM records that were popular in the mid-60s to kind of set the mood. Like, oh, yeah, I remember that song by Cher or whatever it was. So that it kind of gets the audience into that mid-60s mood. That's right. Was there any reworking of the of the show, in other words, uh, in, in any other ways, like the book? Any changes in, in the There were some very minor little uh, changes in, in a couple of lines, uh-huh. that's all, just here and there. And, and nothing major, but, uh, but just to clarify something that was a little... Um, uh, unclear, perhaps. The was it so that audiences today would get it, or is it for other reasons? I think it was just to clean things up that had been written because of a piece of business that came in at that point, which uh, was now discarded. So the line was kind of a vestigial structure of something that wasn't uh, relevant any longer. I'm, I'm probably less than half a dozen lines were changed. Now, were, were you in any way looked upon as the expert on the show, since you were not only there, you were in the show the original time around, and your your two stars were probably not even born when the first show was running. Were yeah. they, did they ask you for information? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, they didn't, and, and I don't think they should. Uh, um, and yet I still think I was the expert, but uh, I, I didn't expect to be uh, consulted really about uh, the, anything that would make a comparison of help. This was a vision and a concept, and uh, I was delighted to be a part of it, but I, I knew that uh, my boundaries were my boundaries, and I couldn't say, no, 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 this is the way we did it, and this was the way it was done, and this is how this worked, and this is how that worked. I, I often wanted to do something like that, but I uh, well, held my it, tongue. It's interesting. <laughs> you sound like, 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 like a loyal soldier. You made a reference before to Scott Elliott, the director, saying that you came into the show with the concept of how you wanted to portray Victor Velasco, <laughs> but he had a different way, so you went with his way because he's the director, well, he's the boss. Exactly. Yeah. He, and now here, talking about you didn't want to volunteer the information, kind of like you're, you're letting everybody else find their way in the show. Is that Well, it wasn't a matter of letting. I, I, I was simply not uh, asked to put my two cents in, and uh, that's fine. That's the way uh, it should have been. And, and if I was directing it, I wouldn't want somebody to put their two cents in because 45 years ago they'd been in a different production of it. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't uh, anything out of the ordinary for me not to, uh, you know, contribute in that sense. Mm-hmm. And that was fine. Th- th- those, I think, are words of an experienced person who's been around for a while. <laughs> I don't know if there's somebody in their 20s would be saying the same thing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, they wouldn't have the problem, we I guess. wouldn't have the experience, that's for sure. Well, you've done so much work. We want to try to take some time to talk about all of it. And I've been long very curious to ask, you know, after uh, you had done Barefoot in the Park, you did a, a very short run in another show. And a couple of years later, you were cast in Don't Drink the Water. Now, was is that a case of... You already knew Woody Allen, or is that where you met? Well, I think you may have uh, 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 the wrong information. In terms of the Broadway shows? Uh, Well, in terms of the Broadway shows, I had done four Broadway shows before I did Barefoot in the Park. Well, then then we have some wrong information. Yes, Mm -hmm. you you do. If you'd like to know what they are, I'll be happy to rattle them off. uh, My debut was in a play called Something About a Soldier. People always used to say, can't you remember the title of it? That was the title of it, Something About a Soldier. And it was produced by Dory Sherry and the Theatre Guild and directed by Dory Sherry who had been the head of MGM Studios for many years back in the 40s and 50s. Anyway, uh, it was a play about a pacifist and it uh, starred Sal Mineo and Ralph Meeker and Kevin McCarthy and it ran all of two weeks on Broadway at the Ambassador Theatre. 
And when that closed, I was uh, then my next job was as a replacement in Take Her, She's Mine, which was then a big hit with Art Carney and uh, Elizabeth Ashley. And I was only in that for a little while. I went out on the road to do a, my first Neil Simon play, Come Blow Your Horn. And uh, that was followed on Broadway by The Last Analysis, Saul Bellow's very first play starring Sam Levine in a cast of 20. And that ran all of three weeks, and uh, we closed. And um, shortly after that, I went into um, Never Too Late on Broadway as a replacement for Orson Bean for a few weeks. And finally, I was hired to be the understudy for Robert Redford's understudy because Robert Redford was going on vacation. This is in Barefoot in the Park. This now. was Barefoot in the Park now, and uh, I was uh, I was hired in the event his understudy didn't uh, wasn't able to go on for uh, within the two week period. As it turns out, his understudy broke his ankle in Central Park playing softball while I sat in the stands and watched it, and thought to myself, "This guy's break is my big break," and it was because I went on instead of him when Redford went on vacation, and many months later, when uh, Redford's replacement Robert Reed left for good. They turned to me and they gave me the part, and I was in it for 17 months. And I, at that point, to get back to where we started, I auditioned uh, for Woody Allen's first play, Don't Drink the Water, five times. And uh, Woody still didn't think I was correct, right for the part. And playing did. a role that would have been thought of sort of as the Woody Allen role if, yes, in, exactly. that, in that show. That's right. That's right. Axel McGee, a kind of bumbling uh, guy who gets everything all loused up. Uh, and finally, David Merrick, who wanted to cast me in the play, he was producing it, made Woody come and see me in Barefoot in the Park. And I can still remember him walking into the dressing room and saying to me, you're very good. Why are you such a terrible auditioner? <laughs> Which a lot of actors will appreciate because mm-hmm. auditioning is terrible. But uh, he said to me right then and there, he said, well, you have the part. You are Axel McGee. And that was my next play. So that brings us up to date. Huh. But so so it was it was a case of auditioning and ultimately a longstanding relationship that your auditions didn't necessarily get you. It was well, I never had a relationship with Woody. That's the first time I ever met him right. when he came into the dressing room. Yeah, I I, I didn't know him uh, before he cast me, and I didn't get to know him uh, in the entire year that we did. Don't drink the water. Really, he was very shy. He was the author of the play, and uh, we didn't uh, really have much chance to socialize at all ever. And it wasn't uh, until several years later when I was in Play It Against Sam and we were both acting in that together on Broadway that we really uh, began to relax with one another and uh, got to be friendly. I guess also the relationship of author to performer is different than fellow performers would be. Absolutely. Or if Woody had been directing, which he was not on those productions. Mm -hmm. That's true, although the director was fired out of town in Philadelphia and Woody took over for about a, a week before they found the other director, the new director, and in that time, uh, he did uh, he did direct me a bit, mm-hmm. he, and uh, uh, I must say, uh, with brilliant ideas that I don't think I uh, I accomplished very well. He he wanted me to trip over sofas and do all kinds of stuff that he can do, and uh, it wasn't really right for me. Um, but uh, he stuck with me, and uh, eventually Stanley Prager came in and directed "Don't Drink the Water," and we opened, and we were pretty successful. It ran a long time. Well, we've been talking about plays you've been in. Then you made the leap from there to musical comedy. How now, Dow Jones? How did How now, Dow Jones happen? 
I, I, I only remember going to an audition at a theater and having David Merrick come up out of the, 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 the audience and right then and there in front of my agent who was there for the audition offer me a contract. And my agent didn't say a word. <laughs> and uh, I said, sure, sure. And uh, that was my first contract uh, in a musical for, for, uh, for How Now Down Jones. And not only was he offering you a contract, he was offering you the lead. Yes, it was the lead. That's right. And was that the big surprise to you? Here you are in a David Merrick musical? Well, I, I had hoped for, for such a thing, I guess. I, I was a singing major at the High School of Music and Art in New uh, York City, uh, and uh, I, I knew I could carry a tune, and I'd worked hard on my audition. I certainly uh, remember doing that. Um, but that was a great a great moment for me. What kind of experience was it working with David Merrick? He had such a reputation as being tough and whatever. Well, I always got on long, uh, got along very well with him. He used to hang his coat in my dressing room every night before the show when he when he came to the theater to see his his plays, and he would often commiserate with me about the troubles he was having out of town with other shows and things like that. Um, maybe I was so intimidated by him that uh, that he felt comfortable uh, in my presence. But uh, he he was uh, he could be very shy, you know. And hmm. uh, uh, but around me, he was always very uh, very gentle and soft spoken, and uh, um, I, I I never had a problem with him. From his reputation, shy is not a word you would associate with <laughs> David Merrick. <laughs> well, in some areas he was shy, and in other areas he was very forceful. I mean, uh, he said to me once that his job was to make a marriage work, a five-way marriage work, because his uh, approach was to uh, to know that the author uh, didn't particularly want to make the songs fit, and the person who wrote the songs didn't necessarily care about how the book was coming <laughs> along. And his job was to make them both sacrifice their own egos and their own work in terms of it working for the good of the show. And, and uh, he would do that by threatening people and by, I mean, he threatened them physically, but he would threatened to deny them whatever it was they they cherished the most. If the uh, songwriter loved the director, he would go to the songwriter and he'd say, I'm going to fire the director unless you change that song. And he got results with that kind of uh, uh, manipulation or threat or coercion or whatever you want to call it. But that's how musicals were, were made, and, and, and they were made on the road, and they were made with that kind of forceful negotiation, let's say. <laughs> negotiation, <laughs> yeah. good word. Yeah. Well, in this case, the people who wrote the music, Carolyn Lee wrote the lyrics, and she was a very well-known uh, theatrical writer. But Elmer Bernstein wrote the music. He was known really more for movies than for, for Broadway. That's right. How did that combination come together? They met on a plane. Really? They, they did. Carolyn and Elmer were sitting on a plane together going to California, and um, uh, I think it was Carolyn said, I have a great idea for a musical. What if uh, somebody uh, wrongly announces that the Dow Jones Industrial Average is, is, is suddenly hits 1,000? Of course, at that time, in those days, I think it was down around 400 or something like that, so that was an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. And she said, and it turns out it's not true. And they started thinking about it, and they came up with a great first act on the plane. And I believe it was bought by David Merrick on the basis of that outline. And, uh, of course, that's why we were then in Philadelphia, Washington, and Boston trying to figure out what to do for the second act. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I'd like to you know, give an example of, of their music. If you'd like to pick a song, you know, from it and maybe tell us how the song worked in the show and, you know, then we'll play it. One of the songs that, that you perform on, any one of Charlie's songs, that was your character. Yeah, this was a great song called Touch and Go, uh, which came in the second act and uh, it was uh, sung by myself and uh, Marlon Mason, mm. who was a, a much better singer than I was. And uh, I haven't heard it in a long time. From How Now Dow Jones, an example of the music from the show, Tony Roberts playing Charlie in that. Uh, that must have been a fun experience, your first Broadway musical. Well, it was great. I, I, was, uh, I was crazy about Elmer Bernstein's music. I knew his music from the movies, and uh, I was, I was d- delighted to, to meet him, and he was a wonderful guy. We stayed friends our whole lives. He was a g- good man. And he had gone to the same school I went to, uh, mm. the High School of Music and Art. Um, uh, and Carolyn was a was a bright, wonderful, witty, exuberant woman, and uh, of course, I, I also got to work with George Abbott, who was a legend, and uh, that's something I'm very proud to say. Uh, so it was it was a wonderful experience. And it's in that era that you started doing television work and started into film work as well. Uh, shortly after that. Well, uh, I, shortly uh, is is a subjective idea. <laughs> I, I didn't make a, f- a film until 1971, actually 70 or 71, and it was for Walt Disney, the first picture I the did. The Million Dollar Duck. That's right, The Million Dollar Duck. My very first scene uh, required that I get down on my hands and knees and bark at a, uh, a coop full of ducks <laughs> uh, in 110-degree heat. And thus a- is a film career made. <laughs> I couldn't believe it at the time. And two years later, it's Serpico. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, things got better. But also in that period, you then um, went, you were doing Play It Again, Sam, was just before that. So so it, it w- the film of Play It Again, Sam, was that a real turning point in terms of, of the move into film and television? Well, um, that was the most successful film I made at that time. Um, I was in a uh, Star-Spangled Girl, the film version of Neil Simon's play with Sandy Duncan, and um, uh, that was a kind of low-budget throwaway. Paramount had to make it in order to get the rights for something else. And uh, that Neil owned, and um, they, Jerry Paris directed it, who who uh, was a wonderful director. Uh, but nothing really much happened as a result of that film, uh, for me anyway. I think played against Sam was a much more visible uh, place to be seen. Um, and then Serpico, I guess, was nineteen seventy two or seventy three, and that was a big hit. So, uh, but you had an interesting mix of. You were doing some light comedy, some musical comedy, and then into into Serpico. It's it's an amazing mix, and in there, uh, another big musical, Sugar. Yeah, yeah, with Bobby Morse. Was, I'm, a, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. That's how I used to describe <laughs> myself. Well, Sugar, of course, based on the, the Billy Wilder movie, Some Like It Hot. The two guys getting into an all-girls band. Mm-hmm. And you played Joe, as I recall. I did indeed. Joe, the uh, uh, saxophone player. 
Which was that, the Jack Lemmon role? Or the no, Tony it was the Tony, Tony Curtis, Curtis role. role, who I once found myself sitting next to in a steam room in California, and we'd never met, and we were the only two people in there, and it was very foggy, and I couldn't let it go by. I, him, I couldn't let it go by, and I said, I have to tell you, Mr. Curtis, that you and I are the only two people in the world who ever played Joe and Josephine, because <laughs> that was the girl's part. <laughs> and what did he say he to that? He was charming. He was cute. <laughs> said hello. He shook hands shortly. After that, it was time to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Uh, well, uh, Sugar was a, was a musical comedy, underline the word comedy, I guess, and with music set to it. Uh, should we play a song from that? Oh, sure. Let's see. Um, <laughs> what do you want to How about the play? title song? Sugar. He said. That would make sense, I guess, to play the title song. What you know, we know what the storyline basically is, but how did that particular song work in the show? I think this was the end of the first act when uh, they decide that they uh, they like uh, where they are, and I've started to uh, make eyes at the title character, Sugar, and uh, the two of us are, are delighted to be in Florida because uh, Bobby has met a millionaire. That's a song from Sugar, the title song, and of course, performed by our guest today on Downstage Center, Tony Roberts. That show was written by Julie Stein, who was uh, one of the, the golden age of, uh, of musicals, uh, songwriters, along with the lyrics by Bob Merrill. Mm. Did you work with the two of them on the show? Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's another case of a show being made and changed on the road. Right. There were lots of things that were taken out, and new things were put in, and songs dragged out of uh, old suitcases and things like that. Um, until we figured out what would work and what wouldn't work. Well, the movie wasn't a musical, but how, so how did they adapt the movie into the Broadway show? Did they change lines to match the music, that sort of thing? Well, that's a great question because because the movie is a chase, right. which, of course, movies do great. Uh-huh. And to do a chase on the stage is difficult. You have to change the set every time you change the location. I mean, you know, there's no pace or anything. And they couldn't figure out how to keep the threat in the plot because we're being chased by a gangster. So initially the gangster was a singer. It was uh, Johnny Desmond and he had some songs and they'd bring him on and he'd sing but somehow or other the plot would get stuck. So they decided to make him a tap dancer and that way they could bring him out on stage and have his feet get hit by a spotlight Mm. and you'd hear him tapping and you'd know that he was right on their tail. And that worked pretty well throughout the show. It was Nick Condos, one of the Condos brothers, a great guy and a great dancer. And uh, that uh, that was a, a marvelous breakthrough in terms of helping to keep the show moving. Uh, there was a lot of uh, work done on a train, and uh, Gower Champion decided he didn't like the train that they had built for him, so they built another train and put it into the ballroom of a big hotel in Boston, and all day we would rehearse on the train that was in the ballroom in Boston, and at night we'd go in and play on the train that was <laughs> in the theater until we got to New York and the trains got straight Different out. train. <laughs> but, uh, again, a thrilling experience to be around um, Julie Stein and uh, Gower Champion and all the other people involved in that show, and Bob Merrill, of course. It's very striking to me that for someone who has originated many major roles in shows, you have 
very freely throughout your career. You've also been replacements in shows, and that is something that there are plenty of people who would cho- would choose not to do. Hmm. Um, I'm just wondering about the experience of going into shows for you versus having the opportunity to create the roles. And, and how, well, how I can only say that I I always knew this was a very tough business. And I wasn't willing to pass up an opportunity uh, if it was there. And I didn't want to look out the window and let five years go by before somebody else came up with an, uh, uh, an original role for me. So when I had the opportunity to replace uh, Robert Klein in there playing our song, and I replaced Jason Alexander in um, Jerome Robbins' Broadway, and I replaced Robert Klein again in Wendy Wasserstein's um, The Sisters Rosenzweig. Um, they were great parts. They were great parts in wonderful shows. And I was uh, flattered and delighted to have a crack at it. And in the mix of all of this, when you talk about great parts, you mentioned earlier, I don't think we stop and say, um, you know, Saul Bellow plays, not, not what we think of. But you have also done Chekhov. And you have done Beckett. Mm. And the opportunity to play those roles and your choice to do them. I'm curious as to how those came about. Well, uh, I have to credit my agent, uh, believe it or not, for finding the Beckett at the Irish Rep, uh, which was one of the most uh, challenging and gratifying things I've ever done. This is uh, the Irish Rep, which is a small off-Broadway company, and you were in Endgame. That's correct, yes. Uh, but I was inspired uh, when I was in college uh, at Northwestern University by a woman named Alvina Krauss, who really had a religious uh, fervor about the theater and thought the theater was the best way to change the world and uh, wanted all of us who were her students to be devoted to the idea that this was serious business, whether we were doing a comedy or we were doing a musical or whatever we were doing, that we had the opportunity to change lives every time we acted and that we should come at it with a seriousness of purpose. So I jumped at the chances that I got to do Chekhov or to do Shakespeare or to do Beckett through the years because uh, I, I always felt that, that those were my real roots, you know, that, that more so than being a song and dance man or even being a light comedian, which uh, was how Woody Allen uh, saw me. He used to say I was like William Powell, I should be so lucky. <laughs> you t- talked a moment ago about going into various shows, uh, more, more than a couple, as replacement. Uh, when you go in as replacement, how do you then make the part your own? How do you find your own interpretation within the company that already exists? You are now the new guy on the block, so to speak. Well, that's a good question. You you have to obviously uh, give a performance that will work with all of the other performances that are being given. So you can't decide that you're going to be on stage left when the other guy was on stage right. And you have to say the line with a certain amount of pace and with the same meaning pretty much as the other guy Mm -hmm. did. Somehow or other, being different always took care of itself. It was not the other guy. It was me, and I was different. And uh, in whatever way my imagination thought of to say these lines or to to make myself believe that I was that character, it came out differently than than it came out with the... The other gentleman who I replaced. When you knew you were going to be going into a show, would you then go to see the other person in the role, or would you prefer not to see? I the always guy? preferred not to. Uh, I, I I benefited from having seen the other person in the role by, by accident because I'd been there to see the play or something. 
but um, I, I think seeing it more than once was a mistake. Seeing it once is a great aid because you get a silhouette of the character. You know the limits of it. Uh, when you're rehearsing something from the very beginning, you really don't know. I like to think of it as being in a dark room and you don't know whether you're holding on to the tail of an elephant or a snake. You know, what is it that you're that you've got a that you can make out of this and when you've seen somebody else do it it's a lot easier to fill in the blanks as it were you know how far you have to go in your own performance to get to that of course going as replacement you don't have a very lengthy rehearsal process you kind of are thrown into it very quickly yes yes that's true that's true but somehow or other uh <clears throat> you know, a lot of the rehearsal time, uh, the four-week rehearsal time that a play or a show really goes through is spent exploring a lot of things that are thrown out. Mm-hmm. So when you replace, you don't go through that. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. don't go through that. Uh, this is what it is. This is what it has to be. Do it. <laughs> well, as, we, as, as John asked about you know, seeing people who may have preceded you in a stage role, you have played originated roles on stage that were first originated on film. We talked about Sugar and the fact that, Hmm. you know, playing a role that Tony Curtis had played, and though we obviously today aren't going to talk about every one of your Broadway shows, we'd be remiss in not bringing up Victor Victoria, where Uh. you created on stage a role that was originated on film by Robert Preston. Um, Did that hang over you as you went into that, or or was it, again, starting starting afresh? Because the show itself was directed by Blake Edwards, who had, had done the film. Yes. Um, well, nobody could be as good as Preston, of course. Preston was great in that film, uh, just fabulous. And uh, I didn't want to imitate him. Um, and we had a little uh, difficulty getting off the ground with it. Uh, we opened in uh, Minneapolis, and I don't think I was doing a very good job with it until about the fourth or the fifth performance. And I remember suddenly Blake Edwards came back and he said, that was it. Tonight was it. He said, what did you do? He said, it was different. You found it. What was that? And i got to tell you, honestly, I don't know what it was, except confidence at some point to uh, let myself go. Um, It's very scary when you start uh, in front of audiences. I like to say that a show never hits its stride until after six weeks of playing. And uh, that's true of just about everything I've ever been in. It takes that long to get that comfortable in it so that the audience feels your comfort and enjoys the control you have over it, even though it may seem at that point wonderfully spontaneous and improvised. It's not. It just looks that way. But in order for it to look that way, it has to go through the process of a lot of growing pains. And I don't know why it suddenly clicked on the fifth or sixth performance in Minneapolis, and Blake Edwards says, that's it, that's it. I think it may have been finding the degree of effeminacy. Uh, in the character, which uh, I uh, was wary of uh, uh, doing too much of, uh, but it had to have a suggestion of it. And uh, at some point, I, I guess I hit, I hit what he thought was right. So when he said to you, that's it, mm-hmm. did you yourself already feel that, or, or was this... Well, it's always a, nice to be reassured, you know. <laughs> I mean, you, can, you start to feel comfortable uh, to an extent because of the laughs that you start to hear uh, come from the house. And, uh, but, but no, it, it, uh, it always helps to have somebody, a third eye, say, yes, that was right, because they could just as easily say, no, that's not it. That's wrong. So when someone encourages you, you know you're on the right track. You know, you, you can keep going 
in that direction. Especially somebody like the director saying that. that that's the most <laughs> important person who can say it. <laughs> well, speaking of directors, Woody Allen has directed you in half a dozen movies now. We talked about Woody Allen briefly. We can't let you escape without you know, talking about those other six films. All right. At that point, in each time when that comes up, was was it Woody just calls you up and says, I'm doing a movie, come on in? Because we hear stories about that he doesn't even tell people a lot about what he expects them to do and and doesn't give tons of directions. So what what is the experience with him? Well, uh, his, his with me, uh, he would call me and say, I have something in the spring. Before you take another job, check with me. And I would check with him, and he'd say, yes, I have something, and... Um, I'll send it to you. And he did send me the whole script. I I was always given the whole script. I know other people were only given sides. Uh, perhaps those people had smaller roles. I don't know. But I usually got the whole script. And uh, sometimes I would go to his apartment, and uh, we would read the lines uh, together um, of the scenes. And um, he might scribble something down, or uh, he might say to me... Uh, do you feel comfortable saying it that way? Would you? How would you say it if you were going to mean the same thing? What words would you use to say that? And um, sometimes those were the. It went that way. Um, uh, that didn't necessarily always end up to be the shooting script, but it was a, a step in the process that led to that led to what became the shooting script. And he did give direction um, frequently to ask that people sound more natural, that they act less. And that's uh, tricky because what usually happens when somebody does that is that the energy drops out of things. So his two pieces of direction that I remember most vividly were that it needed more energy Bags of brio, he used to say. Brings it needs bags of brio. Comedy needs energy, and at the same time, he didn't want it ever to sound like it was scripted, like it was stilted. And of course, a lot of people through the years have thought that it was uh, improved and uh, that it was ad lib, like an Altman picture. No, I, I, I uh, it wasn't. It, everything was scripted. Everything was written down, hmm. and very often we did the same scene several times, and he would ask us to overlap lines so that it would sound as if it was coming out, as if it was being said for the very first time. But uh, that was um, a lot of skill to do that, at least on his part. We should point out that the movies we're talking about include Annie Hall and uh, played again Sam, Stardust Memories, Midsummer Night Sex Comedy, Hannah and Her Sisters, Radio Days, some pretty well-known Woody Allen films. Mm. One fun thing I'd like to talk to you about, totally off the subject of, of performing, uh, the Theater Authority, you've been very involved with that. You've been very involved with Screen Actors Guild and Actors' Equity over the years. Uh, tell us about your various different involvements. <laughs> you, you've, been, you've been on the on the board of the Screen Actors Guild and Actors' Equity. You've also been president of Theater Authority. What is Theater Authority? I know, but would you explain that to Sure, sure. Theater Authority was established in 1937 by the uh, uh, five performer unions. Um, Actors' Equity Association, Screen Actors Guild, uh, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, uh, AGMA, uh, American Guild of uh, uh, AGVA, rather, Variety Artists. Um, there was a lot of exploitation of performers when they worked in charity performances and benefit performances. Very often the money didn't go to the charity that it was supposed to go to. If an actor got injured during the course of uh, the uh, benefit, there was no insurance policy to cover his injuries because it didn't fall under a regular contract. 
And uh, the five unions felt that there needed to be an umbrella organization uh, to uh, make sure that this was all uh, legit. And that led to the foundation of Theater Authority Incorporated. Um, Jane Powell was the president of it for a very long time before I was asked to uh, to take over. And um, I'm largely just a, a, a figurehead. There are lawyers and attorneys from each of the unions who uh, make sure that all of the uh, money goes to the right place and that the insurance policies are taken out. And as a result, there's a small donation made by the charity to Theater Authority, which distributes the money to the um, philanthropic organizations run by the unions, uh, the Actors Fund, uh, the Motion Picture, uh, not Motion Picture, uh, yes, the Motion Picture uh, Home in New Jersey, um, the Catholic Actors Guild, a lot of agencies that provide welfare for needy performers, and there are certainly a lot of those, receive something of the uh, amount, a small percentage of whatever is raised on these big telethons or on small charitable performances that, that occur elsewhere. So that's what Theater Authority is. Yeah, I'd always, I'd worked for about 10 years on the Jerry Lewis telethons. Uh-huh. I always remember Ed McMahon making an announcement once during the telethon that's under the supervision of Theater Authority and all the different unions. So I always wonder what that was all about. Well, kind of explains it. We're very grateful to Jerry Lewis for what he did, and a lot of people have benefited tremendously in our industry and not in the industry from his, from his efforts. Well, Tony Roberts... I think it's a good point just to kind of wrap up and say thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Likewise. Thank you, Tony. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding all of our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap. And thank you.